David Fowley, um, are you real or are you a replicant? I don't know. I'm going to have to tre- check my director's cut. <laughs> Which, okay, help me out with something because we're talking about Blade Runner. Oh, okay. Talk- well, oh, wait, wait a second. Oh, uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is this the, is this the uh, the Voight Kampf test of podcasting? Um, so we we talked uh, we went to go see uh, Blade Runner 1982 Ridley Scott classic um, at the Auditorium Theater in lovely Chicago Illinois on one of the windiest nights I ever recall being part of downtown. Yeah. Um, it was part of the uh, the Chicago Philharmonic uh, did a it's a series they've been doing for a, a while now where they actually show the movie on the big screen of this gorgeous theater, but they actually have live orchestral accompaniment playing all the music from the movie. I mean, all the music, including like the, the, the vocals they have, you know, someone singing the, the vocals from the, from the show. In um, this case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. So we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to talk about Blade Runner, uh, which is, I can't believe it's 42 years old this year. That's insane. That's crazy. But I want to ask you about the version that we saw mm-hmm. because there's five cuts of this thing. I don't, I don't know if they actually specified which one it was. So maybe you can tell me it was the one, it was one of the ones without narration, which I immediately saw as a red flag, but it's been a while since I've seen that version. So I don't know. What did you make of it? And which one did we see? I think we saw, I don't know if we saw the final cut. Was the final cut was the one that was that the one that was released in theaters in the early nineties? I don't know. 91. Okay. (laughs) So uh, it was either director's cut or final cut. Um, But it had, it was the cut that cut the Kubrick, shining end scene the kubrick shining end okay let's do one back that up? here yes because <laughs> and this is okay every time i watch blade runner it's mm-hmm. like i've never seen it before because i'm pretty sure every time i've watched it, i've watched a different version yeah and and my wife who accompanied me to the event and, and you were there with our mm-hmm. with our mutual friend ralph um she had never seen the film before in any version so this is her first time and as she's walking out like she's asking me questions about like i have no idea i i half of it felt new half (laughs) of it felt different i don't know what was going on what's this shining thing you're referring to so the studio as far as i know the studio you know when this movie came out in 82 it did not do well you know famously Mm -hmm. i can't i think it came out like maybe a week after E.T. or something. And so, like, I think it came out the same day as John Carpenter's The Thing, which also didn't do too well because everybody was seeing E.T. So both of those movies are non-cult classics. But uh, so Ridley is also famously the type of director who always has a lot of cuts in his pocket, Um, cuts of his films. Uh, just so you know, um, so the, there, there's always going to be there's a Kingdom of Heaven cut. There's a I'm sure there's a 1492 cut. I'm sure there's an American Gangster cut. There's a, he's got all sorts of director's cuts, and pretty soon we'll have a, a three and a half hour Napoleon movie. Um, Yay! So on that note, when when he was working with um, I think it was Warner Brothers um, on Blade Runner which is an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick story, Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep? Um, The studio was like, uh, you're going to have to put on some, put on a different kind of ending. Because he had the ending that we saw at the Auditorium Theater, where it just, they go into the elevator, uh, Deckard's apartment elevator, uh, they meaning him and Rachel, and then cut. Okay. Um, so he was he was getting complaints from studios saying, oh, this the audience isn't gonna so Wait, that that was the part they thought they'd be confused. <laughs> <laughs> so so um and also of course the 82 theatrical the original 82 theatrical release had the uh narration by Ford. But the ending, uh, so I don't know how close of friends uh, Ridley Scott and director Stanley Kubrick were, uh, but he hit up 
uh, Kubrick because he said, hey, I know you have a bunch of aerial stock footage or, or aerial footage from the, the Shining. And so remember it, it. I don't know if you remember because I know every time you see Blade Runner, it's something new. Uh, but at the end, it's just like like aerial shots like they're in like you you're you're basically have an understanding of they're they're in their they're in uh Deckard's spinner and they're leaving they're going north like she mentioned and they're going out in the wilderness and you see like all these like it's an aerial shot of like all these mountainous roads and a mountainscape and everything and that was from the shining it's like when they were on their way to the lookout or was it the oh, overlook overlook i was going to say lookout yeah the overlook <laughs> That would have been amazing if they had actually used that footage and they they landed the overlook and then it cuts out. Wow. Is these Scatman crothers like what's going on? Yeah. Oh man. Um. I, yeah. I'm I'm glad that we didn't see that version because yeah, I think that that elevator scene was the perfect way to end it. Yeah. Um. Now, so for those who have been living under a rock and don't know what the hell Blade Runner is. Um, it takes place at this, this is what I love about classic movies and watching them contemporarily in a packed theater. It was a laugh line when they show the title card, Los Angeles 2019. 2019. <laughs> well, good thing we survived that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the city was on fire. There's pollution everywhere. It's a techno dystopia. I mean, it's far flung science fiction, right? Um, but, uh, no, it was so it's this future where you've got the Tyrell Corporation, which manufactures these uh, these androids, and they they use them for off-world, like essentially slave labor to colonize other planets and and things. And at one point, there is sort of a, a revolt by these androids. Uh, the Nexus Six series uh, specifically, they decide they don't want to be, you know, just <laughs> slave labor anymore. Um, and there's a bunch of these like revolts and renegade androids running around. So they have these Blade Runners, which are a division of, I guess, the police of some kind, who are tasked with tracking down these uh, androids and putting them down. Um, and Rutger Hauer um, plays Roy Batty, who leads a contingent of uh, himself and five other uh androids who make their way from space down to earth uh two of them die off screen and then so it's it's four of them and harrison ford is brought out of retirement um as a blade runner he plays uh, deckard this kind of hard-boiled detective guy and he's recruited by m emmett walsh uh who once Ryan. again proves the uh m emmett walsh uh, harry dean stanton rule which is that any movie featuring those two actors has to be at least very very good i think that was need uh, the old Ebert. magic yeah, yeah, man, I, I just love that guy. He's, he's, so he's great. great. Um, but so, yeah, he's got to track down these uh, these rogue androids. But he also meets the head of the Tyrell Corporation, uh, Mr. Tyrell, who, uh, going back to The Shining, is played by uh, Joe, Turkle. Was Joe Turkle, who was uh, part, part of the Overlook crew. And uh, here he's playing another sinister guy. Uh, he's got a, a new model named Rachel who he keeps in his pyramid compound. I guess she's like the next level of these uh, Android uh, characters. Um, and like Deckard. Yeah. I guess he's getting into animals. Was that a thing? Like, I, I don't think they mentioned that, that they had that they'd been branching out into animals, possibly I, because these yeah. androids had been outlawed, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that obviously it, we see the owl a couple of times in the beginning when he, when Deckard visits Tyrell and does the Voight comp test on Rachel. And then we see it later when uh, Roy uh, visits Tyrell in his bedroom. Um, and, and there's always that kind of look at the, like, it almost looks like, you know, like a, a glare or a fake eye type thing. So um, I, I think it, they probably made these animals just because they can. You know, um, and and it looked like it was just like eh, I, I like owls. Let's let's make a a replicant owl. Well, it's it's interesting because without that line of dialogue, you would think it was just Tyrell's pet owl. They don't have a yeah. moment where the owl lands and he takes off the back of its head to say, "Oh, look, see, it's actually a, an android owl." Right. Um, it's just a real owl. Um, I, but yeah, Rachel yeah. is the next, I guess, version of this, but. She is, in some ways, a secret because, again, these life forms are are outlawed, uh, except if you're 
rich and powerful and can keep these things secret in your compound, I'm, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned um, some of these, some of what you said, um, well, not a lot of it, but some of what you said happens off screen. To anybody who's watching that hasn't seen Blade Runner, a lot of that explanation of Roy Batty and his crew and how they crashed crashed on the the west coast and the in the in the ocean that's all explained um um in a conversation between bryant and deckard initially um and you know we never see that in fact we never really leave the kind of dirty grimy uh los angeles we don't see the coast we don't see uh, most of the movie in fact i think all of the movie takes place during the nighttime and you know so and that could have been for a lot of reasons you know obviously um more moody uh, the budget or you know whatever you could do more you know with back then matte paintings miniatures models mm-hmm. um and uh so I, I i think it's even though like i feel because i've watched this movie so many times um and it maybe it's because of the i'm gonna say straightforward storytelling and not simplistic but just straightforward storytelling because there is that type of storytelling we it's it's good storytelling too because we have a picture in our mind of oh crashed into the ocean there's these four so it's it doesn't really need to be uh shown to us because the the way in which these characters are talking it's like we could easily visualize it yeah, there's that one line where um, Rutger Hauer's character is talking to Decker. They they finally meet at the end, and it's kind of a sad uh, confrontation. It's a violent one, but the thing about these androids is they're given a four-year lifespan, yeah. but they don't necessarily, from what I gather, have access to when their origin date is, so they're not exactly sure how much time they have uh, left. Right. And at one point, uh, Roy Batty is talking to Deckard and, and talking about how the, like the things he's seen and done, like, I can't remember the exact line, but it's like, have you ever seen a, a space freighter on fire at the edge of Orion or some, something mm-hmm. like that? Uh, and it's just, it, there's something about the way his, it, it, the camera holds his face and that line delivery, it's almost hypnotic. Like I could, that's one thing that I have carried over from each of my viewings of this is I see that scene when he's described when he's saying that sentence, I can picture it in my head, the theater of the mind, even though we never see it. I think modern movies would have flashed to some big special effects shot of like bodies burning in space or something. But no, it's uh, that's all up to my imagination, which well, I appreciate. It's so great because yeah, you're right. I mean, I think if this was made now, while I mean, the great part about that, um, the ending which is, you know, you, you expect a kind of climactic uh, antagonist versus protagonist in a movie like this. But um, Batty, Roy Batty, Rooker Hauer, winds up saving Harrison Ford's Deckard. Um, and they both are exhausted. And one one of them is, is expiring uh, right there in, in the rain and at night. And of course, that's the classic, you know, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. That's what it is, yeah. Uh, I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All these moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. And the camera stays on Howard the whole time. And I think you're right. Like, Like you said, it's like, I think during that dialogue, if anybody else would have made this, you probably would have seen those things like, you know, we would have seen the tax ships and, you know, uh, as he's explaining it, but no, we just stay on him and he's, and he's holding, I, I don't know. I wonder, I have to watch it. Some of this behind the scenes stuff. So I wonder if it was Rucker Howard's decision to like hold the dove. Cause he, he holds the dove and he's looking at while Deckard's hanging on to the side of the building. Uh, how, uh, Batty is on the other, the building across the way, and he's holding this dove and in one hand, and he jumps over the side, he still has the dove in his hand, and he just sit. he, well, he, he helps Deckard back up, 
throws it, throws him down, and he just sits down across from him, still holding the dove, does that whole monologue, and as he expires, the dove lets go. I mean, it's almost like a great John Woo moment, but <laughs> but uh, but that's just. It. I mean, with the score, the Vangelis score during that time, it's just like. And I mean, I remember being like 10, 11 years old the first time I saw this and I was just like, whoa, like, I don't know. I, I mean, at that point, I didn't expect such a um, kind of like an existential um, provocative ending like that, where you actually think about uh, mortality, you know, instead of like a big battle. Right. And, and, you know, the, the way that Howard dies, I mean, he just, he's just kind of slumped over. He expires, you know, his battery runs out. And again, that's not, we don't see like a battery pack, like blinking lights, getting weaker or something. We just see him, you know, die in that moment. And it's beautiful. I, something that I hadn't really picked up on in the many times I've, the handful of times I've watched it, obviously not as many as you, but each of these replicants you know, when they are being hunted and, you know, they are desperate to cling on to life, even Daryl Hannah's uh, Pris, who is sort of the, you know, almost the, the seductress pleasure like, model, pleasure model, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's, that's one of several problematic, as they say, uh, things in this movie. And yeah. it was a point of limitless discussion for my wife and I about uh, <laughs> the, the scene between Deckard and Rachel, which we'll get to. Yeah. But no, with Pris, when she dies, I mean, she gets shot a couple of times and her body almost has the same reaction as Ash in the movie Alien mm. when his body starts flipping out because he is a robot who everyone thought was a regular person and his body starts to short circuit and, and you know lose control and people are having trouble like being in the same room with him. She kind of goes through the same thing. She's on the floor almost like screaming and pounding her fists and legs like a baby yeah. because she doesn't want to die. You get the sense that it's part short circuiting and part desperation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably nothing she's ever felt before too. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, so before that, there was, uh, he chased after, was it Zora? Uh, yeah, Joanna, Joanna Cassie. Yeah, who was um, kind of like a, also, I guess, a pleasure model, who's a, a dancer with fake snakes and everything. Um, it, And I, I think each time, although he is, Deckard is a, has a good reputation as a Blade Runner, I think each time he um, expires a skin job, you get the idea, like, why he retired. Um, the first time he goes into Bryant's office, um, thanks to Edward James almost, um, he says, you know, and, and I'm glad we watched this with subtitles at, at the Auditorium Theater because I always thought the line was, I was quick when I when I left here, and I'm I'm twice as quick now. But no, it was I was quit when mm-hmm. I when I left here, and I'm twice as quit now. To me, that doesn't make as much sense as quick, but okay, it I it, mean, it kind of does. But it sounds like that artificial kind of like hard boiled dialogue. It's something you'd read in a Frank Miller yeah, comic, right, you know? Right. Nobody talks like that, yeah. but people wish they talk like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and and. Yeah, so those are that was one of the things that I picked up. But I, I feel like, yeah, each time it, there's a like I said, there's a reason he's retired because I think he's although he's great at his job, I think he's tired of like killing, you know, he's tired of retiring androids even if they're manufactured. They they still, when they die, they still seem like people you know um yeah this that's an interesting read and it makes a lot of sense and my theory i guess which seems to change every time i watch this movie and i know it's been a a source of debate and there was sort of a spanner thrown in the works when um denis villeneuve's blade runner 2049 came out a few years ago for decades there have been a debate over is deckard himself a replicant yeah and uh, I, where where do you fall on that before so, I get into my theory? Here's where I fell on that. I currently I fall on yes, he is a replicant. 
He um, is. Yeah, yeah. Where okay. I where I fell on it is, you know, as a kid, you know, and watching this, I'm like, there's no way Harrison Ford's a replicant. You know, it's like I I couldn't. I mean, literally, we watched him go from Hansel, Indiana Jones, Rick Decker, John Book. You know, it's like no way. You know, and of course, because that theatrical release in '82 had the dialogue, the voiceover dialogue, or not the dialogue, but yeah. The movie has dialogue, but the voiceover narration from Deckard, this kind of gumshoe Sam Spade narration, it humanized him a lot more, I think. Um, and so when you take that out, which is what happened when the director's cut and the final cut was released, and you insert the the unicorn dream that he has at the piano when he's drunk, um, and you you also have the whole um because the unicorn dream is in there at the end when we see gaff's little miniature unicorn on the ground outside his apartment door it's like oh there's a connection that's why he kind of smirks and then leaves so i i feel like the final cut or the director's cut kind of communicates uh the potential of getting on board with the you know, concept of Deckard being a replicant, but I don't think I'm on the fence whether he realizes it. Um, and maybe it took Rachel for him to realize it too. I don't know. Well, <clears throat> I mean, that's the thing is I, I think what started this journey was when he's talking to uh, Tyrell about Rachel mm -hmm. and talking about, you know, what makes her so different. And it's this idea of it's, it's not, it, it's not pill, maybe pillows or something. He uses some kind of an analogy, but uh, these kind of like fail safes that are implanted in her circuitry. So essentially Deckard says you implant false memories. He's like, you're talking about memories. That's right. See, I, I should just say, what's the line, David? Cause you've got this. Are you? A I'm going to go back. Are you a replicant? <laughs> um, but whoa. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so it's at that point he almost starts to question. I mean, he's looking at photographs differently. There's all these pictures of you know old photographs, people we assume are his family, and he starts to wonder perhaps are these even real? Who am I? Where do I come from? Um, we don't know anything about his past, really, except that he used to be a Blade Runner and then he retired. Mm -hmm. But as I'm watching this story unfold, I'm wondering, you know, how old is he? How yeah. long, how far back does this history go? Was he the best Blade Runner for like 20 years and then he retired? But in actuality, that was just programmed. He's only been around for two years, one year. True. The other cops on the force or that, that he goes, you know, M.M. Walsh's character, they recruit him back onto the job, implying they have a history, but we don't know how long they would have worked together. Right. He could have been a transfer into the department saying, oh, this guy's got a tremendous reputation, right. which could have been BS paperwork worked up to help him infiltrate this police unit, become a Blade Runner, and then he quit or was decommissioned but made to think that he quit or whatever until he was brought back off the shelf to handle this problem. Right. Because we only see one other Blade Runner, really, in the film, yeah. and that's the guy that uh, from Holden. the opening interview gets it's shot, right? Yeah, Holden. I love that yeah. opening. Let me tell you about my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Bam! Um, so, yeah, it, he starts to come unhinged, and when he is especially when he takes out uh we'll call her zora joanna cassidy's character he's really upset by that experience mm -hmm. he almost has the same physical reaction as we see brian james's character in the beginning when he's taking the void comp test which is essentially a series of random or seemingly random questions meant to infiltrate the programming of the blade of the the replicants and evoke an emotional response right it's almost like a hack to force them to give away the fact that they're not human and we see him go through that one or two times deckard through the course of the movie yeah yeah um for sure and i think it increases like i said like each time he comes into contact with a replicant 
Um, I, I did get a kick out of uh, how he, um, how Deckard made his way into Zora's dressing room. Because <laughs> it, it's, because I vividly remember, like, I feel like that was kind of like one of the first times you're seeing like Harrison Ford kind of like stretch and like play. Uh, you're, he's still a character, but he's playing something else, you know, as well. You know, he he's pretending to be a what a journalist or a fanboy yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of the bit in Star Wars when he's or, playing when they're doing, infiltrating the cell. How many times I use the word infiltrate? But he's pretending to be uh, an Imperial guard talking into the radio. It reminded me of uh, Last Crusade when the him and uh, what's his name? Oh, what's her name? Ah, uh, Elsa. Elsa. When they went to the castle, and he's like tapestries, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's like again it was indiana jones playing somebody else it was it's it was kind of cool to to just to see some of his tactics you know um and and you almost get the idea like with his expressions like he doesn't know if this is really going to work like if she's going to buy the fact that he's you know making trying to make sure that she works in a place that's not discriminating her and and she's like are you for real and of course, you know, yeah, he's not, or maybe he isn't, or really isn't. Oh my gosh, you know, it's a pretzel and a mirror. That's right. Um, and yeah, I mean, just the, and, and then that whole chase scene, I mean, just the congestion of the outdoor, outdoor downtown, or I guess just, I guess, congested Los Angeles 2019. I mean, it was just, it was amazing, you know? It is, and I, I know we talked about this briefly after the movie, and, and you're a fan of Blade Runner 2049, mm -hmm. but I mean, but oddly, I think we both agreed that this original Blade Runner, no matter which version you're looking at, does not need a sequel. No. And and I, I stand by that. Like I think that's part of my problem watching Blade Runner 2049. It was overlong, and I didn't feel like I got anything out of it that I hadn't gotten from the first movie. You know, we still have a rather blank protagonist who is a Blade Runner or isn't, uh, you know, is your mm -hmm. replicant? Isn't he? What's the big mystery about like Rachel and Deckard from the first movie? I'm like, OK, so there's uh, androids can reproduce now. Or at least this one could. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, but... there's definitely things. I, I don't think it's a perfect film. Like I thought Jared Leto was miscast. Um, I always say it would have been cool to switch out David Desmondson's role in the movie with Jared Leto. That would have been cool. But um, I, I mean, I, I love, I absolutely love the Dave Bautista scene. Um, I thought that, that was, it, you know, visually and everything, the way it plays out is just so cool. But it it is. But again, it's still we get a version of that scene in Blade Runner with the whole like, you know, pulling someone through the wall and all that stuff mm -hmm. like when I'm watching Blade Runner 2049, I'm thinking I'm literally just watching a not that great version of Blade Runner with modern technology. I, I, yeah, I disagree on that. I feel like it adds a lot more. There's a lot more characters. There's a lot more world building okay. here. There, there, there are a lot more characters. I'll give you that much. Yeah. But what do we gain from the experience of this universe and what Philip K. Dick or Ridley Scott were trying to say with the original Blade Runner I mean, people talk about Blade Runner 2049 now in the context of, yes, it was a Denis Villeneuve movie, and yes, it was a sequel to Blade Runner. When people talk about Blade Runner, they're still talking about Blade Runner. Yeah. <laughs> like, 2049 is a thing that happened, but it's it's kind of like Mean Girls. You know, 10 years from now, they're going to be like, yeah, remember Mean Girls? Yeah, Lindsay Lohan was awesome. No, I meant the musical. Wait, they meant a musical? Oh, shit, that's right. Yeah. Came out on VOD six weeks after I, it was in I, theaters. I think 2049 <laughs> will be remembered a little bit more fondly than Mean Girls musical. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I, 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 yeah, here we are 42 years later. We're still talking about Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. And it's been for a lot of valid reasons. Um, it, yeah, didn't need a sequel. Heck, neither did Ghostbusters. You know, I mean, I, it, <laughs> neither did a lot of movie from the eight, a lot of movies from the 80s. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember when there was talk about a Blade Runner sequel, and I'm like, no, no way. You know, um, and even I think in the 80s, maybe mid to late 80s, maybe early 90s, 
they they were start starting to put out like uh, Blade Runner novels. Not a whole lot, but at least maybe two or three. And I don't. I just didn't. I, I again, I didn't want to touch it. Uh, but now they have, you know, come over the since 2049, or maybe because of 2049, they've had uh, comics and animated stuff. And um, I'm fine with that. But look, it's not going to destroy my childhood. I still have Blade <laughs> Runner. You know, um, five versions of that, it. Yeah. I, I know, right? <laughs> I, I I have that. Uh, I think it came out around the time the final cut or something like that. Maybe Did you get the suitcase? Years. The suitcase and everything with the little spinner. I, and... I had it and I think I sold it. Um, yeah. The half price books, probably because I was like, "Oh, it'll come out on Blu-ray," and it did. But it's a nice come out thing that... with the fight. It didn't come out in a suitcase. I no. should have kept the suitcase and no. just like sold the Blu-ray or the DVD. Yeah. Now <laughs> the suitcase was in this movie, right? Because wasn't it? Is that the thing that the Voight comp test was contained yes. in, or yes. something? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, um, and I mean, I think this was to me like, again, it had such an impact on me because it was the first movie that, like, I would say that it was probably the first science fiction movie that I was fully immersed in. Um, because everything beyond Star Wars is not science fiction, it's space no. opera. Yeah. Um, yes, I saw some Star Trek and everything, and but you know I started watching Star Trek by reruns of the original series. But this movie, I was just like, "Oh, this is what could, this is what our future could look like." And then I was like, "Man, Deckard's wardrobe's awesome." You know, I still like. I would love to just like have tons of variations of Deckard's wardrobe and just wear that all the time. Like, like love it. It's it's interesting because this came out the same year as Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, uh -huh. and in both those movies, like at one point, Kirk is wearing I think a couple of the the, the jackets with those wide kind of like scalloped mm -hmm. yeah. collars, yeah, 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 yeah. similar to what Deckard had. Yeah, going yeah, on. true. Yeah. They, had, they had like the raised collar, but then it kind of like like an arch came down. Um, yeah, yeah, it was just so cool. Um, yeah, yep. I mean the costume design, everything, the. Um, and and I actually in 2018 I actually took a when I took a trip to Los Angeles I did my own kind of Blade Runner pilgrimage where um, I went to different spots where the movie was filmed I went to the Bradbury Building uh, where J.S. Sebastian works and really I mean obviously they did a lot more with it visually but I went into the lobby and you could see those elevators you know it was it was just like ah oh, this is so cool. And then I went to, I went up to the Hollywood Hills and I, so Deckard's apartment, um, the interior apartment is what we really only see. Um, that was, I guess, the same house that was used for House on Haunted Hill, the original Vincent Price movie. Whoa. And and you, I wound, I, I, I found all the addresses by like IMDb. So I'm like <laughs> on my phone driving around. And so... I went there, parked my car, and sure enough, there was another guy. And he's like, are you here because of Blade Runner? I'm like, yeah. So we can. <laughs> can, you take a, can you take a picture of me in front of it? Yeah, I'll take a picture of you. And it was just so cool. Um, but yeah, that scene where, like, mainly, like, the interior, like, when you see his, like, kitchen and some other areas, that's the interior of this house. And uh, also, when he's, like, kind of wrapped up in a blanket with his whiskey and goes out into his uh, uh, balcony. That's also like kind of like the exterior of this house. Um, and then everything else is matte paintings and all that stuff. But yeah, it's just, it was, it's cool. Like, I, you could do that, you know, with movies made nowadays, it's all, this was made in the volume, you know, this was made in green screen. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And you can tell just as much as you could with the matte paintings and stuff, but yeah. it's, it's like a hundred times less impressive. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, I mentioned to my wife that, Blade Runner is one of my earliest movie memories in a theater. Mm. And I'm pretty sure my parents took me to see it when I was five years old. Oh my gosh. And she was, as with a lot of stories from my childhood that I, that come out, she was more than mildly horrified, especially when this, the scene where Roy Batty confronts Tyrell <laughs> and basically squeezes his head and gouges out his eyes with his mm -hmm. thumbs I could feel my wife looking at me in the dark and I know what she was thinking. She's like, your mom took you to this five years old, huh? Yeah. 
Um, like, or or like it was probably your first boob shot on the screen, right? Like with with Zora undressing and changing her clothes. The strange thing is, I don't probably know, not. <laughs> no, I well, maybe. Um, I that's uh, that's there's a whole podcast series oh, of my. stories from my okay. youth and movies, but no, uh, the thing I remember most is deckard like walking through you know los angeles like going to get sushi and mm -hmm. vague remnants of you know vague recollections of him talking i don't remember what the narration was but i remember harrison ford's kind of monotone voice mm -hmm. that was the impression that left on, that was left on my five-year-old brain and she's like why would your parents take you to see that and i thought well they probably figured since i loved star wars it's like hey han solo's in a new movie and mm -hmm. they had no idea but they didn't march me out i remember that much yeah um so, but yeah, I mean that what I love is I didn't want to see a sequel to this movie, but I love the fan theories. And again, I don't need to see this in comics or in movies or TV shows, but just like the idea that there are connections between Ridley Scott's Blade Runner universe and Ridley Scott's alien universe, like Absolutely. connections between Tyrell Cor Corporation, Wayland Yutani. There's all this talk of like colonizing other worlds using you know androids who can pass as people like perfectly um it reminded me a lot of like prometheus and uh, alien covenant with the whole idea of you know david the android and this kind of mm -hmm. desire to and i know this came out you know three or plus decades after blade runner but the idea of the android trying to find its identity by finding its father and confronting it mm -hmm. um it yeah there's there's all these great little connections there that make for again it's great to think about and to imagine but i just know if someone were to actually make that they'd, they'd screw it up probably probably um so with this watching this uh this past weekend in concert at the mm -hmm. auditorium theater um did you pick up different things or new things or um well, like I said, it was all new uh, because because you're watching I've, the orchestra and the movie, and I was curious. Are, did you find yourself watching one or the other a little bit more? It's strange because this was not my first experience with this with the auditorium yeah. theater and the Philharmonic. I actually saw Ghostbusters there. Right. Um, I think it was last year. Um, yeah. with uh, was it Elmer Bernstein's son mm -hmm. or uh, conducting? Oh, really? His son? Yeah, wow. yeah. It was like a big, big to do, and it was very cool. Um, but watching Blade Runner, I had the same kind of experience where I found myself watching the movie, and then occasionally, I'd think I'd be listening to the score, and it's <laughs> very loud. I'm like, oh, that's loud because it's happening right in front of me, and I look down, like, there's a full orchestra performing right. this music right in front of me every little bit too yeah. for for example and i don't remember do you remember the lady's name who was who was singing yeah. cheryl what was wilson. her name cheryl wilson she plays electric viola and was a vocalist um and my friend well our friend ralph who i came with um he knows her and he's worked with her before and he was just like yeah she's phenomenal got a phenomenal voice and you know what when, when we see her like most of the time she's sitting down playing her viola but then in certain points you know when we hear this like you know indecipherable like vocalist in the movie and everything going ah, you know um she's like 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 you just said it like it sounds really loud oh because it's live and that woman's standing up and she's singing and and it literally to me it, it requires a, a great gift of mimicry because it's not a language necessarily and it's not you know it's not something you just pick up it's probably a combination of a lot of different things but you would just assume that it's one of those things where she just had to study you know that the movie and and just try and come up with her own thing or not her own thing but try and mimic it and then she did a fantastic job well and, and the thing that struck me was the timing i mean I, I would have to, I, I wouldn't want to nitpick the experience like this, but I still feel like if you were to play the original Blade Runner and somehow match it up with the timing of the performance of the live orchestra, it would sync perfectly to yeah. the point where even if somebody screwed something up and maybe they felt like really self-conscious, like, oh, I missed this beat, the audience would have no idea because it's a seamless 
experience. And yeah. that's when when she stood up and started singing, I immediately I, I don't even I couldn't tell you what was going on in that scene. One, you know, she only sang for like a, a like minute a or two. Of times, yeah. Right. I was focused on her. I was like, yeah. this, this is amazing. And when you're watching Blade Runner, that's incidental music. Oh, totally. Just, right. So it's not like it's not like Deckard goes to the opera and is watching someone perform. Right, right. It's just music that's in the background. Yeah. Um, so in the best possible way, it took me out of the movie. So yeah. it's a great it's a great thing to experience. And I think especially if you get I mean, I, I feel weird saying this. The screen, it's a huge theater. It's a small but, screen it's a small screen it really is a live music venue so yeah. if you're gonna do it i'd say get as close as you can because i was imagining we had good seats yeah so we're we're pressed we saw we had that advantage but uh looking back um if you were in the top balcony it'd be like watching it at home but even phone. then right but in that case i would imagine you're going more for the experience of watching yeah. the orchestra right, right 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 for sure especially if you have that kind of bird's eye view um the, yeah as far as the screen there, there were definitely times where like the quality of the picture kind of like popped crackled and i'm like what yeah. is this um one thing that was very interesting to me that was i don't know if you noticed this but it was during the scene where um roy batty joins pris at j.s sebastian's uh apartment home and she and he are you know buttering him up and complimenting him and really trying to win him over so he could uh bring them over to see tyrell um and there was this i felt like there was this weird moment that i'm like okay i don't remember this music and it was i think when pris was kind of like maybe doing her backflips in in the kind of toy area and stuff when they were talking to him and i'm like all right i don't I'll have to watch this movie again on my own because I don't remember that type of music. It was almost like uh, it was the only kind of ripcord moment for me because it's like I I feel like I know Blade Runner music really well, and it, to me it, it it and maybe I just didn't know that part very well. But yeah, it could that could have been something that was inserted between like different yeah. cuts and things. I don't could know. Could be. Could be. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think overall it was, it was really cool because it's like, you have three keyboardists in the front and in front of those guys was the conductor who also has his own little monitor of the movie right in front of his stand there, along with sheet music. I have to say it was so cool to see sheet music and stuff. Um, but, um, and then behind the keyboardist, you have like, um, electronic or electric, viola violin saxophone you have to have a saxophone for memories of green and the blade runner love theme um yeah the, mainly blade runner love theme um and then i there was some percussionists behind them and then there was a, all the way to the stage right there was a bass player for the love theme as well um just really cool because like you know going in that this is going to be like a synth heavy performance you know because it's Blade Runner in its 80s and it's Vangelis you know who even when he did Chariots of Fire it was very synth heavy you know um and and really Scott worked with Vangelis again when he did uh, the kind of Christopher Columbus flop 1492 uh but um yeah it, so it was it wasn't like the one of the first things I noticed when I sat down is like oh this isn't like a full orchestra it's, you know, it's kind of like a symphonetta almost. It was, um, you know, it was, it filled the stage, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily sparse, but you could tell that it was economical. Like you, you, the, the instruments that were needed were there and that's it. Yeah. The, the Ghostbusters experience was, the stage was fuller. Yeah. That's um, what I, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. That was kind of shocking to me. You know, not necessarily in a bad way, but I'm like, oh, did did people call in sick? But no, it was yeah. it was just the the people that they needed. I always thought it's the same number of people, but I guess it's it all depends on the piece. Um, but yeah, it's I, I definitely recommend uh, the experience. They've got a few more you know bangers coming up uh, this year. They've got Batman '89 coming up in I think May. They're going to be showing uh, Black Panther. They're going to be showing. Uh, 
Bram Stoker. Uh, sorry. Um, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Francis Stoker's Ford Coppola's Dracula. Bram Stoker's Dracula. And then Love Actually. In- Love Actually. Yes. That would be interesting. In December. Yeah. Um, before we before we yeah. go though, um, and by the way, I'll, I'll have information for all this stuff uh, down below. If people want to check out the uh, the Chicago Philharmonic uh, like film series that they're doing. Um, if you've never seen live music but you love movies this is the perfect <laughs> combination yeah. opportunity to do it but um no i i want to go back to rachel and deckard oh yes oh boy help me out it, because there's i'm a i'm not that i have to defend blade runner because it's a beloved you know landmark in the pop landscape but i feel like it's got this centralized what i'll refer to as a rapey problem it's cringy. Uh, yeah. What what is going on there? Like, was this a 1982 sensibility? Was this a Philip K. Dick thing? Was this a Ridley Scott thinking, oh, we got to have a hard boiled detective. So he's got a real problem with the dames and he's not going to let any android stay in his way of his carnal desires. I feel probably the latter. Um, I don't know the novel as, as well as the movie, so I'm not sure like what all was in there. I it It is just really odd because you know at one point she's trying to leave he follows her and kind of like throws her against the wall and he's like you know say you love me or you know say you want to you want me to kiss you and and just like forces himself on her in a way you know and it's just like uh, and then he's like and then at one point he's like oh no you know and he like what make up your mind dude um and and you know I would say the last, probably the last time I watched this movie, this, this movie, I was also an adult. I wasn't that, that much, you know, uh, I wasn't, I was probably in my forties. Um, and, and even then I was like, you know, this scene's kind of awkward and cringy and gosh, I really never had a problem with this until now. <laughs> uh, but, but I, you know, that's what being an adult in time does, but yeah, it was just, it's awkward. And I'll bet that's, from what I understand, that scene has survived all of the cuts. I'm sure because I mean it's it's it would be hard to cut that because it's pretty lengthy and it it wouldn't though because I mean all you'd have to do is, you know I I don't know when he stops her at the door or maybe when he says kiss me or you could cut around it or something yeah. and just have them waking up you know it, you get you can give the impression you cut to black and then give the impression they're waking up next to each other yeah and have it be a fully consensual you know I, tender moment that they they because the end where he goes back to the apartment and they go off to escape because yeah. she is going to be hunted by people like him right. yeah and they're going on the lamb together and they apparently love each other that works so much better if she wasn't sexually assaulted <laughs> right right yeah it's i i feel like she i, I don't know why in a way, I, 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 because of that, I don't know why she leaves with him. I think it's probably because he's her only chance to move on and survive. And and which and makes it that doesn't make it better though. No, no, it doesn't make it better. <laughs> no, I'm not saying it makes it better. I'm trying to trying to justify why she likes him after she he throws her around. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think I think there needs to be like everybody out there, just make your own your sixth cut of the movie where you just like right, right. <laughs> skip past that on the chapter listings. Yeah, more um, more just put in more Brian Jones or or James Hong making eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, I that was that was an interesting scene. Um, he's he's in this like frozen warehouse harvesting <laughs> eyeballs, wearing a giant jacket with hoses hooked up to it and i love that they don't explain what's going on they show what's going on that's those hoses are keeping him warm warm in this sub-zero environment and then these guys show up and gradually just unplug this stuff as they're getting information out of him yeah so good most of these deaths and i think that's that's possibly why they made such a big point of joe turkle's death at the hands of rutger hauer literally is because the other deaths Aside from the opening interview, they mostly happen off screen, right? Right. right. Um, Even uh, Sebastian, he yeah, he died off screen. Um, and 
Yeah, because I remember even when I was watching this, I'm like, wait, did they ever show Sebastian? No, okay. Yeah, I think the last you see of it is you know, he witnesses Tyrell's yeah, death, yeah. and then he makes for it, and then you hear Roy Batty. I think he says like, "Come, you know, come, 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 come back" or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like oh, like he's a dog. Come, right? <laughs> come. I, you know, we have to say a little bit more about Howard's performance because he brings so much to that role. I mean, he is probably one of the most, like, that is probably the most charismatic, you know, crazy uh antagonist of the 80s um sci-fi movies um i it just feels like he does so much and and i don't know what was in the script or what was on the paper i, I think he brings so much more to what's on the role what what the role requires you know and it might be this this viewing because it really puts it into focus i don't think he's he is the antagonist only in so far as well, he's yeah. the person that the yeah. hero of the per, per, the film, the cop, is trying to hunt down. Right, right. But I see him as sort of like the the most sympathetic yeah. character in the movie because he didn't ask to be born as this thing. When he realizes he he breaks the bonds of his own slavery to go find the person who created him and essentially beg him, like, look give me and my you know uh, your other children a chance to live mm -hmm. and when scientist dad refuses him he doesn't even he does it in a cold way but it's very matter of fact it's not yeah. like he's lording it over him he's like yeah. look it's just not going to work because we've tried it before and there's all these mutations and viruses and horrible things and so my wife asked me like why did she have to kill him and i was like well it's because his job or one of the facets of the tyrell corporation was making these replicants right. and so all he's doing is perpetuating and creating these four-year span life forms that are possibly not self-aware and if they do become self-aware there's nothing they can do about it so they're just product but they on some level may have souls uh it's right. it's very poetic and and tragic and when he died i was genuinely sad this time to see him kind of right. punched over in the rain and he's He's wacky, but he's also kind of he's brilliant. Like like he ha they have that discussion of why they can't have uh, be him and Tyrell why they can't extend this lifespan. They talk about organic life. They talk about was it EMS three recombination ethyl methane sulfonate acolyte. What what the both of them are almost almost like matching each other. You could do this. Well, if you do that, that won't that won't work, and it only lasts this long, and then you'll still die. And it's like. Uh, to me, it's like because the subtitles were on the screen, I was like, wow, I, I don't remember picking up all that. Well, and I also I think there was an explanation earlier on in the film about the four year lifespan, how right. they had tried giving them regular lives, but they didn't program them with emotion. But there's something about the nature of being humanoids or around people that they would eventually like over the course of their lives develop the full range of emotions, but it also kind of drove them crazy. I mean, it's it's a fascinating but Roy Batty's character, I feel like half of his reputation as a cinematic villain or nemesis is because of that last name, Batty. You know, yeah. he's he's crazy. He's, you know, yeah. he's played by Rutger Hauer. Yeah. I think if it had just been like Roy Smith, you know, people would have looked at him differently. I'm wondering if that was a deliberate decision to make him seem at first as this thing that needs to be stopped. But yeah. it really is yeah. Tyrell and the things he represents that need to be stopped. And I think too, it's like after if you knew, like some of the other movies that Howard was in, that I guess I don't know, American moviegoers were aware of. You know, after this, it was like Lady Hawk, where he plays, a, you know, good guy, um, uh, The Hitcher, which is like, <laughs> you know, uh, where he plays another psycho. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just he's just so iconic. Um, for a decade after I watched The Hitcher, again at way too young an age, <laughs> I, ate, I ate French fries with a oh, amount of suspicion. Like, check everyone. Yeah. I, there wasn't any of this, like, oh, I'll just grab a bunch of fries and put it in my mouth. No, everyone I looked at before I put it in my mouth. It was horrible. Mm -mm. Oh. Um, but yeah, so any final words on Blade Runner? I mean, Given that we are movie podcasters, I find it hard to believe this is the last time we'll talk about Blade Runner. But for right now, this mm -hmm. chapter, close it out for us, David. Wow. Um, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I, I think it's definitely, as we've no, noted, it's definitely a, whether you're watching it in concert with a, an orchestra or you're watching it for the upteenth time, I, I think you can always get something out of it. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's visually stunning. The, the screenplay is great. Um, and it, again, it's, just, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a very complex story, but it is surprisingly deep. And um, it it's also, I, I recommend this book called Future Noir. I should have pulled it off the shelf, but book this book is a thick book called Future Noir. And it's all about the making of Blade Runner and how it came to be and all the craziness that came with it and everything. And yeah, all the cuts and whatnot. It, and it is kind of crazy that Ford came back for this sequel because you know <laughs> back then i mean because the movie didn't do so well um he you know like i said he famously didn't like the narration that he did voiceover narration and he he never really you know talked proudly of that movie until later um when it kind of became a cult classic but yeah, it's it's kind of like like what we're seeing right now with uh, Dakota Johnson and Madam Web. No, <laughs> I just I I had to see if you I take would, the bait. I would love to see an '80s Sean Young as Madam Web. That would be a great. Going, I bug me. how how do we feel about Sean Young? I uh, I never She's, really got her as a thing. What I remember is like this movie, No Way Out, with Kevin Costner, Gene Hackman, um, and then her audition for Catwoman, for Batman Batman Returns. I mean, I just I just know that she she became like so like out, kind of like crazy loony outspoken in the talk show scene, you know, and all that, but. I also have read that, you know, people who've worked with her thought, you know, she's great to work with and some don't. So I, I don't know. I, I liked her in this role. Um, you know, she kind of just had that classic from the moment we see her, that classic film noir look, you know, with the hair and the costumes and everything. And then interestingly enough, I think when she feels more comfortable with Deckard, that's when she lets the hair out and there's this big curly mane of hair that find that interesting. Like to me, that kind of indicated that she is not only feels safe and comfortable around him, she's kind of coming into her own as a person too. It's the one case where I would say, let's swap her out for Ana de Armas in Blade Runner 2049. Mm -hmm. Let uh, AI make that happen. Okay. Um, that'll be the seventh cut. There you go. Um, that, that does not include the uh, the uncomfortable sexual overtones. Um, all right. Well, David Fowley of Keeping It Real, thanks for talking Blade Runner. Uh, I guess it's the director's cut. Could have been any of the other cuts. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, this was fun. It was great you know, seeing you in person, watching yeah. some classic theater, some classic Chicago Philharmonic. And I hope to be able to do that again, maybe even in a couple months with can you believe Batman is 35 years old this year? That's just crazy. And and I, I know I was I was thinking about that being the next one, and I'm like, all right, they would definitely have to fill the stage with more musicians for for that score. But I'm just picturing that opening scene. I mean, oh, yeah. just regardless of the orchestra, that's it's one of the great openings mm -hmm. in cinema history. Mm -hmm. And it's just a camera running through a model of a bat logo with but with that that Elfman score. And interesting too, though. I mean, how how would they do some of the print stuff? You know, like, would they, I mean, I know it's just score and everything, but like, you know, like when some of that Prince music is playing, like when uh, Jack Napier kind of breaks into the art gallery or even in, during the parade, I mean, that's, you hear bat dance and all that stuff. It's like, I'm, I'm also, I'm more curious. I think about uh, love actually, because that's got a great score, but it's also riddled with pop tunes. So right. do they so get I... people to replicate those, or do they just like play it from the movie and yeah. the rest of it is you know instrumental? I don't know. But I, yeah. I, 
I'm, we're we're gonna find out this year. We're gonna get to the bottom of this mystery. That's right. It's gonna be cinematic Blade Runners, if you will. That's right. Um, but anyway, I'm gonna let you go, sir. Uh, everybody, thank you for watching. Check out David's stuff at Keeping It Real. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, cling, uh, cling, ring the bell for notifications. And uh, until next time, whenever that is, whatever that is. Thanks. Wait, uh, I was gonna do the last bit with Harrison Ford's kind of like blank narration as a too bad she won't live but then again none of us do that's it <laughs> <laughs>